This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I am joined by David Rogers. David is the owner at Kitchen House Coffee. David has been in retail for over 30 years. The majority of his career has been working at larger retailers. And in 2014, David opened up his own coffee shop. Excited to be joined by David. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Happy to join you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and your journey and your story? I think it's a really cool one. I'm excited for the listeners to hear. Uh, Thanks. Well, um, uh, happy for the opportunity to be here. My name is David Rogers. And as Chris stated, I've been in retail for, well, I was in retail for over 30 years. I started my career right after college. Actually, when I went to school, I wanted to be a banker. I wanted to be... Uh, finance and whatnot. And I went to work for a bank, but this was in the late 80s. And at that time, banks were being gobbled up one after the next. And after a couple of near misses with being downsized, finally got hit. And when I went to my recruiter, I said, find me anything except the banking industry. And just by happenstance, I wound up working for Edison Brothers, which is now defunct. Uh, But Edison Brothers back in the 80s, was a major um, enclosed mall player. They had, if you walk into an average mall, they had a good 13, 14 brands. So I went to work for Edison Brothers uh, as an accounting clerk in the real estate department. And what my job was basically was reviewing invoices for lease compliance. And from that, uh, that kind of led to other avenues in the real estate area. I got interested in the lease negotiation side from the compliance piece. And after trying unsuccessfully at Edison Brothers to move into lease compliance and, and lease negotiation, it did not happen. I ended up moving to Nine West, where I worked four or five years and uh, got my first taste of, should I say, lease negotiation. Um, after five years at Nine West, famous footwear came calling, and they were looking for someone to head up their lease compliance area. And having been there, done that, I kind of did it with a little bit of trepidation, thinking, eh, that feels like going backwards career-wise. But it was an opportunity for me to lead my own team. So I took that, and... I kind of took that job with a little bit of hesitancy because it was in Madison, Wisconsin, and I don't like cold. So (laughs) (laughs) the thought of moving someplace where it's going to be cold six months of the year just did not really appeal to me. But Famous Footwear was owned uh, by Brown Shoe Company, which is now Calaris, and that's based here in St. Louis. So I thought, hmm maybe take that job and I'll find my way back home to St. Louis. And after five years in Madison, Wisconsin, my boss actually was promoted to SVP of corporate real estate. So that took him, his focus off of famous footwear solely and put it over retail and corporate real estate, which included facilities and everything. And it was going to require him to move to St. Louis. 
So when he said he was moving, I said, oh, I want to go back to St. Louis as well because this whole Madison thing, I've been here six winters and it's killing me. Uh, and he says, well, your team's going to be here. So how are you going to do that? And I said, well, your team is going to be here. How are you going to do that? <laughs> right. Touche. Uh, and I said, plus, you're going to need some support there. You're walking into a big job, you know. So I kind of sold my way into coming back to St. Louis. And that show, we say, just opened up the whole avenue because I did turn into his right-hand man here. And so taking the scraps of, from his plate opened up my world to corporate real estate, allowed me to start negotiation, uh, negotiating our office leases for uh, Brown Shoe and then Calaris. And then when he left the company in 2013, I moved into that role as focusing primarily on the corporate real estate portfolio and the uh, facility for Calaris. Wow. And then in, you left that to start your own venture. We'll talk yeah. more about that in a little bit. And now you have this coffee house. It's in St. Louis. How far yes. away is it from where you live? It's literally a block and a half away. I, I went from having a 20-minute ride in the car to a two-minute walk down the street to go to work. It's awesome. Wow, that is <laughs> great. Well, it's been open for six years. 2020 was not an e easy year for most entrepreneurs. Was it any different for you? Did you have to shut down? We did. We, we shut down for two months. We had no choice. The, the city shut everybody down. Um, the middle of March. So from March 16th to May, no, actually three months from March 16th to June 6th, we were closed. Um, and having to close unexpectedly, needless to say, we had a bunch of perishables that we had to get creative with. How do we get rid of this? And a lot of it we gave to our employees. We started there. Because uh, recognizing that in the service industry being closed for a number of months, they were going to be hit hard. Uh, and at the time, there was no stimulus yet. So we were just closing and doing our best to kind of help them stay on their feet. So all of the perishables that, perishables that we had, we gave to staff. Uh, coffee products, like we five-pound bags of coffee that you could imagine uh, some places may give them a longer shelf life, but because we are a locally sourced coffee shop, we do everything 30 days. So those five pound bags of coffee, we decided to sell those to our customer. Uh, and they went pretty quickly, which allowed us to kind of manage our inventory so we didn't lose anything. And then when doing that three months, it gave us an opportunity to sit and think about how we were going to pivot and come back in our new reality. And that's exactly what we had to do. And if we didn't, we probably would have gone under. A lot of our, our competitors have. They've closed either seasonally or closed temporarily and forced to close permanently after a while. But fortunately, we've been, we've been lucky. We actually, business has been pretty good this year. Wow. Why don't we take a step back and forgive me. Tell us a little bit about what Kitchen House Coffee is. Sure. So it's a locally, locally sourced uh, coffee shop, cafe that's a block and a half from my house located in the heart of St. Louis. 
It's uh, about two and a half miles west of downtown in the South City neighborhood called Tower Grove East. Well, actually, it borders Tower Grove East and Compton Heights, which is an excellent location because we got a mix of income. Compton Heights is what would be called an upper middle class uh, neighborhood, and Tower Grove East is a very richly, solidly middle class neighborhood. So you've got good demographics in which to pull from, which is in part why we located the shop where we did. Um, and the coffee, what type of coffee are you, is it like anything special about it? Anything unique? What about what you're doing in the shop? Is it like lattes galore? What's going on in the coffee yeah. shop? So everything that we do, it has a specialty flair about it. So we even roast some of our own beans. I roast them personally, actually. That was one of the last things that we kind of moved into. We were the, the big roaster here, roaster, and actually they have coffee, coffee shops too, Blueprint. They provide our espresso roast. And then our house drip coffee and our cold brew is from another local partner that we started with from the beginning uh, called uh, String Bean. And that, similar to me, the owner of String Bean left the corporate America world to get into the coffee business, but he went to the roasting side of the business where I went to the cafe side of the business. Um, so we get our, our house strip and our cold brew from String Bean. And then once I joined the team, um, it was important to me that we also had some offerings of our own. And um, one of our former employees went to work for a shop called First Crack. And what First Crack is, coffee roasting equipment is very expensive. The little tin, uh, the little roasters can run you 10 grand. The size roasters that we use can run anywhere from 20 to 30 grand. And for a small shop who uses other sourcing uh, avenues to invest in that kind of equipment just doesn't make sense. So one of our baristas went to work for First Crack and what they do, they provide the equipment, they provide the training for people who want to roast their own beans. So I went through that course. I started roasting for us uh, back in November of 2019. And uh, like with anything, the more you do it, the better you get. I've kind of honed the craft a little bit. And um, that's actually become a pretty good revenue stream for us because in addition to selling our bags on our shelves, we use them for our pour overs, which is a little bit, um, it's, I would say an elevated cup of coffee as opposed to just going and getting a drip. It's single cup made to order for one person. So we use our, our roast for those uh, pour overs. And it's just been great. It's, it's a, that's one of the things that makes us our coffee special, the low, the, the care that we do in roasting. The thing that makes our shop special, it's focused on sustainability and locally sourced. And we source a lot of things from our own farm. Um, the sustainability aspect of it is important to us because a lot of the things that we focused on is environmentally conscious. So uh, it may cost us a little more, but we have compostable uh, straws. All of our, our paper products are all recycled, recyclable products and compostable products. And it's important to us that we don't 
add to the landfill that we, as much as possible, use our waste. That's great. I love that you're eco-friendly. That's fantastic. I love all the cool things that you roast yourself. You have other local partners. I love that it's locally sourced. How are you competing with the competition? There's a Starbucks not far from you, you mentioned before. How are you competing with the competition of a big brand like Starbucks? You know, we opened, when we opened in the fall of 2014, interestingly, there was no coffee shop around us. And that's kind of how we fell into the business. Um, our coffee shop died. Paul went looking for coffee and he comes back 45 minutes to an hour later and I'm already ready to go to work and I still haven't had my coffee. I'm like, what took you so long? Mm-hmm. Like there's no shop around here. So that kind of got the wheels turning. And shortly after we opened, literally six blocks from our house and six blocks from the coffee shop as well, Starbucks opened. Um, now, I'm not anti-Starbucks because they, they primed the pump, so to speak. Before Starbucks, I don't think anybody would have been willing or had the appetite to spend $5 on a cup of coffee. So I will say I am not anti-Starbucks. If I'm traveling and I want a cup of coffee and there's nothing else around, I go to Starbucks. Uh, but what differentiates us and how we are able to compete, even though we have a Starbucks so close to us, we are about community. Our focus is more so on community and being a part of the community. And that's, that's, what, that's what differentiates us from Starbucks and what allows us to compete. And when I say about community, um, we invest in, our, in, our, in our, our community in such that there's a school a block and a half from us. Uh, And even though this neighborhood is fully gentrified, um, there's a mix of incomes. The school is a public school and it's primarily serves low-income kids in that school, even though the the neighborhood that it sits in is firmly middle class. Um, So we we adopted that school, so to speak. And Paul does a lot of, Paul is my husband and co-owner of the shop. We've adopted that school and we provide toy drives, clothing drives, food drives that directly benefit the school. There is a, uh, what we call a reading nook that's been tricked out with kitchen house branding that we set up in the school where we have books that, that are for the kids to enjoy. Paul has a background uh, in education. So that's part of the reason why that, that marriage kind of happened. Uh, and me, I'm also a chair of a not-for-profit called Wyman Center. And it's a national not-for-profit that's focused on making sure low-income kids and kids from disadvantaged backgrounds can become, them best, become their best selves and become contributing members of the community. So all of that kind of plays into what we do at the shop. You do voter registration drives. Um, every holiday, if it's something that has a, a social justice bent or um, for, for example, Martin Luther King, they just passed. Uh, anyone who is in a career that further, further mankind's mission uh, helps us be our better people. You come in, tell us about what you do, and you get a huge discount on your meal. Same thing for election day. You come in, you show your little I voted sticker. 
just to show that you are uh, concerned about the community and you are invested in it. You show us your sticker, you get 20% uh, off your purchase. On Veterans Day, you come in, you show us your Veterans ID card, you get 20% off your purchase. So those are the kind of things that we do that make us part of the community. They're our neighbors. I mean, we live wow. in this community, so it makes it easy for, uh, for people to want to come, come to us versus a Starbucks. Wow. Starbucks has its place. It's on a major thoroughfare, so anybody on the way to work and just want to pop in to do a drive-through, that's what Starbucks is for. But if Starbucks, if our customers want someone who is invested in the community, who gives back, who shows up, they come to us. That's phenomenal. That I love the I voted discount. You don't see that too often. <laughs> that is phenomenal. I think that that is such a great way to differentiate a business to become the fabric of the community, it's hard to lose when you become the fabric of the community. I don't care if you're competing against the world's most powerful brands. When you're part of a community, the power of community is so strong. It will defeat all the powerful brands if you can be part of the community. So kudos to you for becoming such a strong part of your community because uh, not every business can figure out how to do that. And I can see it's authentic that you guys love what you're doing for the schools. You love all the social justice things you're doing. That is great. We are going to take a quick break here. And now a word from one of our sponsors. With over 80 years of architectural practice, NWS Architects and its sister MBE firm, Chahada and Associates, are committed to the visions, budgets, and schedules of their clients. Incorporating the best in architectural sustainability, licensed in 48 states with a 98 percentage rate, it's easy to see why clients such as DLC Management, Brookfield Properties, Dollar General, and many major junior anchor and anchors trust NWS Architects with their projects, large or small. Call Sanjeev at 312-735-7123 or visit nwsaarchitects.com to learn how they can provide value for your next project. I want to move the conversation to the story. I think it's an interesting story for a lot of reasons and we'll get into some of them, but tell us how you went from working for corporate America for 30 years to owning your own coffee shop. Tell us the story of how Kitchen House Coffee ended up in St. Louis, Missouri. So um, I had no, I, neither me nor Paul ever had any idea, dream of opening our own business. It just wasn't something that was on our radar. Um, but moved into this community in 2012. And over time, we noticed that restaurant would open up here, a bar would open up here. A lot of the houses that had been, um, that hadn't been, redeveloped in 30, 40 years, all of a sudden, we're seeing the neighborhood change and it's become a very walkable neighborhood. And the one thing we were noticing as we walk our dog every night, there's no coffee shop in this neighborhood. How could, this, how could that be with the density of people here? How could there not be a coffee shop? And not long after we were having that conversation, a coffee, our coffee pot died and called, Paul went looking for coffee. He comes back an hour later, says there's no coffee shop in this neighborhood. And at the same time, on the neighborhood 
uh, Facebook page, there was a lot of chatter about why isn't there a coffee shop in this neighborhood? And during that same time, there was a little soul food restaurant that went out of business. And everybody was saying, that's the spot. That would be a good spot for a, for a coffee shop. And I was actually at work on my lunch break. And I, at the time, I was president of the Neighborhood Association. So I would routinely look at our Facebook page at work just to see what's going on in the neighborhood, if there's anything I needed to deal with or address. And I see this thread about, we've got to get this coffee shop. I called Paul and I said, hey, if we don't do this, somebody else is going to and this is our opportunity because clearly there's an appetite the location just opened up so let's jump at it and he's like we don't know anything about running a coffee shop <laughs> yeah it's like yeah maybe not but i've been in retail for the last 30 years he's like yeah but you're in real estate <laughs> let's not kid ourselves you don't know anything about running this business i said no i don't but I, what i can do is negotiate a good lease so get us a good deal and then we'll learn it as we go. Uh, so we reached out to the land, the owner of the building, and we got a really good deal. And uh, we just jumped in, feet first. Well, I love the, the, the entrepreneurial spirit. I love the grit to just, you know, and the taking of action. I love people who just take action. So that's phenomenal. Walk us through a little bit. When you, you get the deal, did you have any concept of how much it was going to cost to turn this place into a coffee shop and start up? No. And had we had any concept of what it was going to cost, we probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what does it cost? What did it cost to get started up? How much? Uh, you would be surprised what it costs to, uh, what, what an espresso machine costs. Uh, to buy a really good espresso machine is like buying a small car. Oh we spent $20,000 on an espresso machine, just wow. the espresso machine. Wow. <laughs> um, coffee grinders, the kind that you need for uh, a specialty coffee shop, they run you $2,000 just for a coffee grinder. So just for the coffee, coffee equipment itself, not even talking about the build out of the coffee shop, the design or anything, just getting the basic things to be able to brew a cup of coffee and make a latte. We were already $30,000, $40,000 in and had no idea that coffee equipment cost that much. Again, we responded to, we need a coffee shop. And we're like, all right, we're going to open up a coffee shop. And wow. then we got busy and like, oh my gosh, <laughs> who knew this stuff cost this much? Were you able to get like an SBA loan or anything like that? Well, we, uh, again, we're, we're, we're idiots. We just jumped, jumped in and we financed all of this ourselves. Just wow. took a chance and, and thought it is going to work or it isn't going to work. Uh, and we can make the decision pretty quickly if it isn't to kind of regroup and do something else. Uh, but the one thing I did caution Paul, I said, I may not be on the uh, merchant side of the business at Calaris and Famous Footwear. but being on the real estate side of the business, I do know we've got to give this at least three years if we're going to give this a running start. It's going to take that long for us to figure out what we're doing. It's going to take that long for people to figure out that we're there. And it's going to take them that long to determine whether or not it's a good fit, if they like what we're doing. I said, so if we're going to do this, we need to commit for at least three years. And uh, that's what we did. 
And we've learned some things in that. We learned a lot in those three years. One of the things that I think helped us, in addition to the coffee shop, right around the same time, uh, I mentioned this neighborhood was gentrifying. So directly behind our house, there were two buildings that were uh, condemned. One that sat on the front of the lot had no historical significance whatsoever. And then there was a little tiny house on the back of the lot that, uh, from what we're told, was built around the 1860s. And it was used as a kitchen house for one of the bigger houses on the street that I supposedly live on, I assume. So um, just as luck would have it, that lot came up in a tax auction. So we were able to get that, that lot for basically a steal. We demolished the house in the front and we built a farm on the first part of an urban farm. And we restored the back, uh, that back building. And we started calling that back building kitchen house. So based on the story that we had heard that it was a kitchen house, we started calling that back building kitchen house. And then we had the farm and Paul again, jumped head in. He took his master gardener course, became an excellent farmer. Oh my God. Such that we've got all this produce for just the two of us. And look, we don't have anything to do with this. Along comes the coffee shop and the produce now goes to the coffee shop. So we, especially during the growing season, all of our greens, all of our herbs, all of our peppers, tomatoes, um, cucumbers, you name it. We grow it our, ourselves on the farm. We also, we've got chickens on the farm. We've got bees. So everything that we do on the farm translates to stuff that we use at the coffee shop. So the, the two of them are married. Kitchen House Farm became Kitchen House Coffee. Wow. What was first, Kitchen House Farm or Kitchen House Coffee? Kitchen House Farm came first. Um, and again, Paul had no experience with that. And when he moved here, he moved here from Chicago after we got married. And me being at Calaris, I told him, I said, well, when he, <laughs> he's determined, deciding what his next career move is going to be when he moved here. And I came home from work one day and he said, I got it. I'm going to be a farmer. <laughs> exactly. That's what I did. I laughed. I said, what do you know about farming? First, you were a lawyer. Then you went from law to education. So I am not getting this. And he says, well, uh, my farming is in my blood. I've got commercial farmers in my family. So some of it has to be in my blood somewhere. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's amazing. Yes. I, I, I said, kudos. I said, but just know that I'm not going to work a 10-hour day <laughs> and then come home and throw on overalls. It's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, fair enough. Uh, and he, he dumped in, he took these courses, he built this farm and it turned into this really nice operation such that I never thought I would get tired of boiled eggs. But when you've got eight chickens, each laying an egg a day, <laughs> you get a lot of eggs really quickly. And it's just two of us. So I'm boiled eggs, eggs and salad, egg salad, and I'm taking them to work. and. He got really good at it. <laughs> wow. So, so all, the, all the food goes to your coffee shop from your farm, your urban farm. Yes. You guys eat it. Do you sell any of it? Like to the, do you have like a stand where you sell 
produce to the market? Can I go into Kitchen House Farm and buy something? Now, the only thing that we sell from um, the farm is the honey. So we added honey. We had a beehives back in 2015. And initially, it was just enough honey for us to use at the coffee shop for our honey lattes, uh, for sweeteners or whatnot. But over the last couple of years, we've gotten such a haul that in addition to using it in our as our cooking ingredients, we've been able to sell jars of honey. So you can come in and buy an eight ounce jar of honey off the shelf that is from our, our beehives. And if you have allergies, as you know, if you use honey from local bees, because they're pulling in those pollen, that using their uh, pollens from the things that you're probably allergic to, that local honey helps with allergies. So it, that's the only thing that you can buy that we have on the farm is the, is the honey. Everything else we use. Wow. Of your business, how much revenue comes from food versus coffee? When we initially opened, we didn't want to be a cafe. We distinctly did not want to be a cafe. I keep underscoring that because that's exactly what we turned into. But that is not what we started out to be. Uh, so we only sold a couple of pastries and it was all about the coffee. And time and time again, that first year, people would come in and say, what do you got to eat? And look, we've got a few pastries here. And yeah, I really need a sandwich. I need something a little more subtle than that. So reluctantly, we started to add food to our, to our menu. And then in 2018, we opened up a second shop, actually, in 2018 that did not survive the pandemic. That second shop, though, what it did, it allowed us to hone our skills as far as a cafe is concerned. Because when we opened the second shop, we had a full kitchen and we did brunch and we really expanded our food offering such that we started cooking for the original shop for the, from the second location. The problem with that second location, though, I should have kept my Calaris real estate hat on and realized Location, location, location is key when you're opening a business and that neighborhood, it just wasn't ready for what we were bringing. But it did allow us to hone our skills when it comes to food prep. So we had a brunch down at that location. We expanded our menu um, and we got pretty good at our, at our brunch offerings. So when we closed that location and solely focused on our original shop, we expanded the seating capacity outside and we added a full kitchen to that location because it didn't have one initially. And when we did that, our food offerings probably rival our coffee offerings during the week. During the week, it's mostly coffee with the grab and go kind of food. But on the weekend, we do uh, specials. So we have biscuits and gravy and all of the kind of hearty stick to your bones kind of stuff that you get uh, from a brunch. We do that on the weekend. So on the weekends, our food sales are much higher than our beverage sale. But during the week, it's the, they're probably 50 Awesome to hear. I love how this is all tying together the farm, the second shop, the kitchen, and you guys are learning along the way. I think that's great that you all figured out, you knew what you didn't know and you were humbled by that and were able to figure it out and learn along the way and you wanted to learn. And I think that's going to help your success from here on out as well. I, I want to talk a little bit about 
you're an African-American entrepreneur, and I know you're passionate about that. Talk to us a little bit what it's what that's been like over the last five years. It's uh, <laughs> it's been it's been it's been a, that also has been a learning experience. So when I say the neighborhood is gentrifying or has gentrified, when we moved in, that wasn't necessarily the case. It was very much a neighborhood in transition. And even though I am a mid 50s professional male, well, when I'm not at work, I like to get as comfortable as the next guy. And I'm bald headed. So hoodies are a thing of mine. <laughs> uh, you may kind of may know where this is going with me being a black man in a hoodie in a neighborhood that's gentrifying. So Paul and I went to Chicago once and he stayed. I came back on the train and I came home and it was raining a little bit. So I got my hoodie up and I'm walking. I walk first walk past the coffee shop and I realized I didn't have my keys. So I just stuck my head up to the window to make sure everything was fine. And it was fine. I went on and I noticed something followed. <laughs> I'm turning around like, huh, why is that cop following me? Oh my God. Um, thought nothing of it. And then I go, when I get home, because this is early spring, when we were, before I left Chicago, Paul and I were talking about, I wonder if our tulips are coming up. So before I went to the, into the house, I go and I'm looking around the flower bed in the front of the house, still cognizant of the fact that I'm being followed by the guy after I've stuck my head in the coffee shop. Uh, but I'm looking around the coffee bed or in the flower bed to see if our tulips are coming up. And they were. What I didn't really, because I had been on a train and on a plane, I had my headphones on, my phone had died. So <laughs> the neighbor across the street calls Paul and says, there's some guy looking around in your front yard. I don't know who it is. So he's trying to call me to see if it's me or if there's someone else out in the yard. My phone's dead, so I'm not getting a call. Um, so I go up the steps and getting ready to go into my own house. <laughs> and uh cop comes up and he's like, so I saw you at that, that shop down there. What was going on? I said, well, I own the shop. And I get this look like, yeah, right. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, yeah, I own a shop and I live here. Um, I don't know what to tell you, but I, I, I stuck my, he said, well, if you own a shop, I saw you looking in the glass. I said, because I didn't have, I don't have my key to the shop with me. Got the key in the house. I can go in the house, get the key, and then go back to the shop and I can show you it's my shop. He said that wouldn't be necessary, but I had this look of skepticism, like, uh, I don't really believe that you own the shop. At the same time, I got my neighbor calling, calling Paul, wondering who's this black guy in the hood <laughs> looking around the, around the yard. So it, it just kind of underscored the commitment that Paul and I have to social justice issues. And it underscores the need for people like me to be more present in the community. And the shop allows us to do that. It's good that um, young kids can come and see me and see my dark face as a business owner in this community. And a lot of times <laughs> they'll, they'll walk, people, customers will walk up because we're not sitting inside now. I spend a lot of time on the patio. Um, 
cleaning up, straightening up or whatnot. And they'll ask me, you work here? Yeah, I work here. I usually don't tell them I own the shop. I just say, yeah, I work here. Uh, and I do that so I can get the feedback of what they think about the place, what they think about the shop. And it's been overwhelmingly positive. I, I don't know that um, we would have gotten the same level of response if we had opened it and marketed it as a uh, gay-owned, Black-owned business. We know it's a community business. It's our community, and it's our, our contribution to the community. Uh, not that we are looking to get a whole lot back from it, although, yeah, we like to get rich off of this coffee shop. But the reality is we won't. It's more of a labor of love, and we make enough to break even. We're not making a whole lot of dough yet. Ideally, we will at some point. Uh, this pandemic has taught us a lot. So I, I, I do think that when we're able to open up and see it inside again, uh, business is going to just do even be, be even better than it's been. Right now, it's allowing us to break even. Once we're able to sit inside again, I think it's going to take off. And the fact that we do have such a community bent, we do focus on everybody in our community. Uh, it just makes us who we are and it allows us to compete. I, I love everything you're doing. Thank you for sharing that story. The business lesson here is the more that you can become a fabric and, and be authentic, be a fabric of the community the better your business will do. I have no doubt that you're going to reap the rewards for all the good you're doing for your community in that part of St. Louis. I have no doubt that your business is going to thrive when the doors open back up and people can be seated, get ready because they're coming to Kitchen House Coffee. You know, they have been showing us so much love during this pandemic. When we first shut down, it uh, on more than one occasion, it really got me choked up. Just the, the people reaching out saying, we really want you to survive. And they come in, like I mentioned, we had to, to sell uh, inventory so it wouldn't go bad. They'd come in and buy a, a, a 12 ounce bag of coffee that sells for 15 bucks. And then they tip us $50 on top of that, just because they, they wanted to make sure that our staff was gonna be okay. They wanted to do whatever they could to make sure we were going to be okay. Uh, and it's just been, it's just been awesome. So to your point, yes, it, it is about community and it is important to us that it is authentically about community. And it's not just, Hey, we see something and we're going to jump on a bandwagon and say, Hey, that shop is doing that. That sounds like a good idea. If it's not us and it doesn't feel right, we don't do it. It has to be all about the kitchen house brand. Businesses that make their business part of the fabric of the community and they give back to the community. That is a timeless business lesson that shows us that it works every time. And it, it leads to the monetary reward. If you're opening up in other markets, one of the things I would tell any of the entrepreneurs listening, if you open up another location, another market, one of the things you can do, even if you're personally not part of that community, is hire people who are, and they will want to be part of that community and make the business part of that community. And again, you will reap the monetary rewards for being part of the community. Uh, the, as much as you give back, it gets paid back to you in dividends when you do that. When we initially opened, one of the things that we look for, we want to hire within the community. So the first seven people that we hired at the coffee shop could all walk to work. It was one That's wonderful. great. 
<laughs> no excuse for being late. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, listen, I'm conscious of time. You have a business to run. I want to take us to the last part of the show called Retail Riz- Wisdom. Are you ready? Come on. Brenda. All right. I got three questions for you. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Well, you know, I said I started this journey at Edison Brothers. So I would say they had a bunch of brands, but I'm a shoe, I'm, I'm a shoe fiend. And Wild Pair was a shoe brand that uh, Edison Brothers used to have. And it, I guess the, the name Wild Pair was because it was cutting edge footwear that you could, if you want to wear a nice dress shoe, all the way to something a little more trendy, a little more wild side, you could find it at Wild Pair. It would probably be the number one brand I'd bring back. Or Jay Riggins, that was also one of Edison Brothers brands. I'm just kind of partial to those brands because I grew up, grew up around them and I used to work for the company. <laughs> Understood. Second question. Yep. What's the last thing over $20 that you bought in a store? Now, that was tough because I physically going to a store. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of split up our, our, our shopping duties here. We, 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 we stay, Paul does the grocery shopping. And I do like the household toiletries, cleaning products, and alcohol. All right. <laughs> so the last thing I did was about uh, I went to the liquor store and stocked up on wine and tequila because today's Friday night and we do Mexican. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Margarita Fridays. Absolutely. All right. Last question. If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? Pet aisle. I'd be, Pet. I'd be looking for dog toys. Should I go to Target? That's the last stop. I always have to bring something home for the dog. (laughs) Love it. Well, David, this has been great. Keep doing what you're doing for your community. Been awesome. I hope you crush it in 2021. I have no doubt when that indoor dining gets ramped back up, they're going to flood the flood the storefront. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.